Pick Up The Pace is a rugby union podcast hosted by All Black super fan and Anadu Ryle, two passionate rugby fanatics from Wainui Mata, New Zealand, who go deep into everything rugby without taking themselves too seriously. Welcome back to episode four of Pick Up The Pace. Yeah. And we're here, team, and we have a very special guest today. It's Ken Laban, Sky Sport rugby commentator, and we're going to dial him in right now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Ken. How are you? Good, boys. How are you going? Good, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen out there, Ken Laban, Sky Sport Rugby commentator extraordinaire. Nice to be on your show. Thanks, Ken. Hey, welcome to Pick Up The Pace podcast, and thanks for taking the time out of your day to join us. I know you're a busy man. Uh, I suppose before we get into the nitty-gritty of the weekend semi-final results, uh, how are you feeling after the All Blacks loss over the uh, weekend? Yeah, well, I suppose for those who are patriotic New Zealanders who... Um, you know, like our super fan that's out there and all the others that love their rugby. Um, you know, there'd be extreme disappointment that they, uh, the All Blacks weren't going to get the Ferritale. Not only were they first team to get back-to-back World Cups, but they were potentially going to be the first uh, First Nation to get the hat-trick. Um, and it seemed to be with the form coming in um, to the semi-final that um, they were going to be capable of doing exactly that. And you know, I had the view that many people had is that, you know, we were going to be treated to two finals in the Rugby World Cup in 2019. The first one was going to be between uh, the All Blacks and England, and then the second one will be uh, whatever two teams are in the final. Uh, and this year it's going to be um, it's going to be England and South Africa. So um, an intriguing intriguing contest, two big forward backs. Uh, well, they supposedly play uh, different styles, the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern, Northern Hemisphere, until we saw what the uh, England team unleashed um, in the semi-final with their um, ruck and run tactics, their ability to keep the ball alive. Uh, they spent virtually no time uh, on the ground. Uh, they might have committed more players to, to the breakdown, but uh, it was a rerun of that dominant Brumbies team that we saw just a few years ago. Um, and I've also seen it in recent times when Eddie Jones has had charge of Suntory uh, in the Japan Top League. Uh, as well, fast-paced game, uh, quick rucks, quick mauls, constantly changing the point of attack, um, and every player, every, every player involved. So it was a, a wonderful disappointment, obviously, from the All Blacks' point of view. But it was a great, it was a great game of footy, especially from an English perspective. It's just a, a, such a hard pill to swallow as a Kiwi fan. You know, as All Black fans, and we expect the dominant performance every time when we go out. I don't know if we felt let down. I mean, England brought the game and. Just, it's just really hard to take, hey. And it, 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 do we see any signs for the future? Does New Zealand rugby should be concerned? Is All Black fans should we should we be concerned? Can we bounce back? Uh, we can <clears throat> we can bounce back because you know we're, uh, we've got the talent and got the intellectual knowledge um, and the ability. But I do agree uh, now that the reality of the defeat has set in <clears throat> that it is absolutely a magnificent result for the world game for the global game. Yeah. Um, you know, we could selfishly say that we want the All Blacks to win and that's our expectation that they would win all the time. But I think it would send a pretty poor message to the rest of the world um, if the All Black team would win three World Cups um, in a row. Yeah. Um, I would thought I would have thought that if the All Blacks had beaten England, uh, the Northern Hemisphere viewing audience for the final uh, this year would have dipped as yeah. a result. Um, so I do see, you know, I do see some positive and some negatives. Um, uh, in the result, but a huge positive 
Uh, that I'm pretty sure that they're going to they're going to break viewing audience records this weekend um, for South Africa, England. It's another blockbuster uh, game. My understanding is that the uh, uh, England All Black game was the, was the most viewed World World Cup game ever. Wow. Uh, record. I think it's only going to last a week. So there was huge expectation in the lead up. Um, to the game, Eddie Jones, I've been fortunate to have been in this company many times as I have with Steve Henson um, over the years. Um, he's a very, 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 very astute guy. Um, plans right down to the details. He doesn't he doesn't sleep very much. Um, and I don't mean that as a mocking way. Uh, he's absolutely obsessed uh, with winning. He's intense. Uh, he expects his players to be exactly the same. And he would have been planning, no, no doubt whatsoever, that their performance in, from uh, England the other night, that would have been a year, 18 months in the planning, yeah. right down to who he was going to pick in his side. So um, good on good on Eddie. And I think if you, if you get the chance to spend some time in his company, you'll find like Steve Hansen is a very engaging, um, very pa- very passionate and, uh, and a dedicated rugby guy. Yeah. And we want to touch a bit about the games um, just later on in the segment and stuff like that. But... Um, can you tell us how you first got involved in rugby commentating, Ken? Well, it's interesting. Uh, interesting background. I was captain of the one Mata rugby league team. I had a background in senior rugby, um, and then I got to sort of my late twenties. Um, I was in the police at the time. Transferred to Lower Hutt, the squad that I was on. Uh, we're all rugby league players. Um, I felt in that my, um, my rugby was done, so I gave the rugby league a crack. Ended up at one Mata. Um, where I was born and raised and still live here. Um, captain of the Wainimata team that went on a phenomenal run in three years, 1988, they were in second division and they got promoted. Uh, 1989, they were in first division for the first time in many years. Won their maiden the Wellington Premiership in 1989. And then in 1990, uh, they went all the way to the national championship final, which was known then as the Lion Red Cup um, at Carlow Park, and they won their first national championship. And I was fortunate enough to... Um, to have been the captain of that team. So, I mean, I was at the forefront of a lot of the publicity and the media interviews. And as the success of the team grew, so did the profile of the captain or the people that were speaking publicly. And one of my interviews was heard by um, uh, well, television people. Um, then I got the phone call and um, said that they heard me doing radio interviews and liked what they heard and invited me um, to give television commentating a, um, a crack. And I'm now into my 30th season. So... Wow. I owe a lot to, um, to the Wainimata Rugby League Club um, for their uh, for their success and the influence and the opportunity that it gave me. Untrained, unqualified, yeah. and still here 30 years later. So there's still a chance for us. So it sounds like us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's right. Well, I'm not going to be here in 30 years' time, bro, so it's very, very important <laughs> that uh, guys like you do exactly what you do. You know, do these, do these sort of programs and put your own opinions and that out there. And, um, you know, the podcasts and, you know, the, the numerous opportunities that are available now uh, to get on here and get your voices out there with social media, um, you know, I'm, I mean that sincerely. You know, for both of you, this is the beginning of a journey. Um, and it's exactly the same way I started. You know, I started talking about things. I started giving my opinion about things. People heard it. Next minute, you get something else come. So um, I'm very supportive of what you guys are doing and, uh, and the potential of what you can achieve, as they say, is limited by imagination. So, you know, good job, boys. Good job. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Ken. Hey, you've been commentating New Zealand First 15 Rugby on Sky Sport for a few years now. Uh, so you've seen hundreds of schoolboy rugby matches in your time. 
As the All Blacks move into a post-Steve Hansen era, what is the state of New Zealand grassroots rugby right now? Is there anything we need to worry about? Or are you confident our conveyor belt of talent will still produce an abundance of future All Blacks? Well, our conveyor belt of, um, of talent, I think, is pretty solid. Um, the pathway by the conveyor belt has changed, and that's a very big concern. So um, some of our older listeners that are from my generation will remember that the pathway was we went to school, then we came and played 19s and 21s, uh, then we played a little bit of reserve grade, then we played uh, Premier uh, what's called Senior A Rugby back then, and then um, if you're okay, um, you then got looked at for the various representative sides that were picked. So it meant that um, all the good senior players and all the good younger players were all on that same conveyor belt, which is via the club system. So, as a, um, But that's now changed because uh, we are in the professional era. We are identifying players at a much younger age. So the pathway is now first 15, uh, New Zealand schools, under 19s, New Zealand 20s, Mitre 10 Cup, Super Rugby, All Blacks. No room for any club um, footy. So you can have an outstanding kid that, you know, went to Arakura School and then went to Wainimata High School and played a little bit of um, first 15, played all his junior rugby um, at the local at the local rugby club, uh, goes through the usual growth, growth spirit, does some wonderful things on TV, um, gets a telephone call from the Crusaders, uh, goes from Wainimata High School straight down to the Crusaders into Lincoln University program where they put their elite kids, um, start, to, start to do some tertiary education, um, then turns up in the New Zealand schools team, um, plays for Canterbury at the under-19s, um, then plays in the New Zealand 20s, then turns up in the Mitre 10 Cup um, through, the, um, through the Super Rugby quickly, then they're, they're, then they're an All Black. So they, they, they do that now. Um, I can tell you who the best kids are um, in New Zealand because I've just commentated four games uh, involving the New Zealand secondary school team in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months, should I say? Um, but I do worry about our clubs. Uh, most kids are thinking that if they don't get picked up for an academy at a point at a young age, that they're not they're not even bothered uh, going to the clubs, and that means that. Um, uh, we're not seeing, you know, the bulk of those clubs that we need for our senior club sides and our under-19 and our 21s are continuing to struggle. You know, you add that to the reality of the seven-day working week and the pressure on um, on our volunteers. Um, they're not as readily available now as they were um, a few years ago. So we do have some challenges at the grassroots, but as far as the elite players are concerned, uh, there's plenty of talent coming through. Are there, um, of the of the players you talk about, are there a couple of names um, that you can mention of, of outstanding players who yeah, are coming, coming through? Yeah. Well, the kid Anton Signer, he was uh, uh, captain of um, captain of Nelson College um, first fifteen. He's a terrific he's a terrific kid. He came out from Germany um, three years ago. He's a seven or a six. Um, he's a very very exciting young. Um, he's an exciting young talent. Um, uh, the kid there, um, Aidan Morgan, the number 10 for New Zealand schools this year, number 10 for King's College um, in Auckland. Uh, him and Latrell Smiler Akiong, um, the first 5'8 for, um, for Hastings Boys High uh, this year, who won the top four uh, competition. They're both very, very exciting kids. 
and with enormous with an, with enormous futures. Um, and there's another boy, Sam. There's another boy, Sam Derry, um, from Christ College, who's six foot eight, um, 114 kilos, lock forward. Um, if any ball, any ball gets anywhere near him, you know he's the most dominant. He's the most dominant line-out jumper in age grade rugby um, wow. in New Zealand. He's another uh, Brody Retallick, um Sam Whitelock type uh, player coming through. Uh, born and raised in Christchurch, his old man was a lock as well. So um, he's, uh, he's 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 a kid to keep an eye out on the future as well. Well, yeah. that's yeah, it's good to good to hear that they're coming through the ranks. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Hey Ken, look, I just want to talk a little bit about um, Steve Hansen as his All Black coaching career comes to an end. You posted on your Facebook page the other day the remarkable record Steve has achieved in his tenure as an All Blacks coach. His record speaks for itself. Can you please share with our listeners the remarkable legacy Steve Hansen will leave behind? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, his record itself stands um, as a matter of public record. You know, so we all know he's been a head coach for uh, for eight years. Yeah. Um, I think he's won 38 trophies wow. in those um, eight years. I think he's sitting on 10 or 11 and one. His rugby World Cup record with um, with one game with one game to play. He's a multiple winner of um, of, of uh, the majority of elite trophies that are um, that are available, including a four time winner of the World Rugby Coach of the Year. Um, eight years as an as a head coach, eight years as an, as an assistant coach. So sixteen years he's been around the um, he's been around the All Black camp. Uh, had some highs, um, had some lows. The first coach to defend the World Cup. First coast, first New Zealand coach to win a World Cup offshore, um, and off the field, especially um, Steve Hansen, the man. He's the man that I admire the most. Um, I think you know the guy with the whistle and the clipboard. He's going to be replaced relatively easily because um, there's a whole host of outstanding candidates, and a lot of brilliant coaches are going to miss out. But it's the little, it's the it's the little things to me that have had the biggest impact. Um, and I just and I especially refer to his his acceptance speech when um, the All Blacks won the Laureus Team of the Year um, after they won the World Cup in 2015. During his acceptance speech, when the global cameras of the world um, were on him, and rugby doesn't have the same, um, you know, it doesn't have the, the same level of interest, you know, that Cristiano Ronaldo or AC Milan. Um, Juventus, those big, you know, the LA Lakers and the Chicago Bulls, all of those teams that are uh, prominent, um, Venus Williams and the tennis and, and those laureate awards. And he spoke about um, the importance of um, humanity and the importance of how we treat each other as people and to make sure that we um, we take care of the planet for our children and for our children's children. And I thought that, um, you know, what a, re- what a remarkable um, act of, um, of respect um, from a um, from a new, from a New Zealand coach speaking to a global audience, yeah. and uh, and it's a speech that's played many times across many social media uh, and mainstream media platforms. And then there was um, uh, Brad Webber, um, Artie Savia, TJ Piranata, who uh, who all came out in support of the um, of the LGBTQ community. Where uh, I think it was Israel Flow and others made. Um, ignorant statements um, yeah. about um, about sexual orientation and preferences, and um, those boys came out publicly. They supported the Rainbow Laces, and then they went to um, Steve Hansen, fifty-year-old, fifty-plus-year-old white man from Christchurch, from a very, very conservative um, Catholic background, 
110% stood by his players publicly, saying that uh, we should love, respect, and include everybody in our society and treat them, um, treat everybody exactly the same. It's the way that we conduct ourselves as All Blacks, and it's the way that we do things in New Zealand. It's the way that we're brought up, and I want the standards and the strength and the courage that my players show um, on the field to be equally influ- influential um, and positive offer. So those are the kinds of those kinds of um, of acts of humanity uh, and leadership that he shows will not be easily replaced. Mm-hmm. I've been interviewing and commentating. Um, I think I've interviewed every All Black coach since 1987. Not one of them has got anywhere close to Steve Hansen in terms of social issues, social responsibility, and um, having such a, an inclusive um, and diverse approach. To um, to many things that test us as a civil society, and he under- he understands uh, more than any other All Black coach I've seen in the past that it's important that such public figures like him take um, take those public positions because you know obviously they're a, you know they're a beacon of light and a beacon of leadership for all of us to follow. Um, so you know we had the performance over in the weekend. One underpar performance surely does not define this great man who has sacrificed his life to help the advanced game of rugby in New Zealand. We've heard it all before. Form is temporary, class is permanent. And, you know, just what you've just mentioned and um, about the convey about with the All Blacks, mm. I think we're in good stead going forward. Mm. Um, Regardless of the result of the next game, he's going to finish He's going to finish his eight years All Black coach at 88%. Oh, that's um, amazing. Coaching. With coaching record, so you talk about classes. I don't think anyone's going to beat that, though, to be honest. Yeah. Because um, I think it's going to get harder to win as you go forward. Um, and I think that those fantastic days of uh, uh, that we saw, you know, during the period of 2011 through to 2015, you lost all those players who retired, mm-hmm. and they've done a phenomenal job um, since. And I think it's going to be harder for the All Blacks to win going forward. Um, which I think is exciting as well. Um, I think we all want international competition. We all, we know the result's going to be uncertain. But, you know, even when I go back and I read in the paper, I can't remember it was 507 or 508 weeks at number one, but not just being at number one, but being world champions for eight years. I mean, it's like Tiger Woods in the major championships or all these big-time players. You just can't see it being beaten. No, it's hard to see it. No, exactly. You know, Obviously, obviously, we can't tell the future, but that's a heck of a record in the professional era. Yeah. So the question now is, uh, who are who are the main contenders for you to replace Steve Hansen as All Blacks coach? Well, I suppose um, Steve Hansen was eight years as an assistant, and then he was appointed head coach. Um, and the success that they enjoyed, um, you could argue, um, he took to another level. So if they were going to follow the track that's been successful for them, Ian Foster has been an assistant um, for the last eight years um, and, he, and he wants the job and he's been part of a very successful regime. Having said that, Dave Rennie has won two Super Rugby titles. Mm. Scott Robertson has won three Super Rugby titles. Um, Chris, Chris Boyd has won one title and Jamie Joseph has won uh, one title and has done a phenomenal job um, with Japan. So uh, any one of those, uh, any one of those contenders, um, I think would be, uh, you know, I think would be terrific. I'm not sure if all of them will apply. Um, Scott Robertson's already indicated um, that he's that he's very keen um, to do the job, and you know, and nobody could argue with his credentials uh, to do the job. 
although we could, uh, or a cynic might say, why don't we see how good the Crusaders are going to be next year uh, without Franks, um, without Whitelock, uh, without Kieran Reid. Uh, and without Matt Todd, mm. and then why don't we make an assessment of how good they're going to be, good point. Uh, or how good he's going to be as a coach? I'm just going to chuck a spanner in the works. I, I read something today. I, I don't know if it's true. It may be not. Who knows? Um, Eddie Jones, <laughs> or am I crazy? Well, no. Well, you know, um, you're not. But uh, New Zealand have never appointed no. a, um, a non-New Zealander to the All Black job. Um, and given the success of all the New Zealanders that have had the job yeah. and all the New Zealanders that are doing well and are qualified to take the job, um, I always think that's just media talk. Yeah, yeah. I always heard there's no silly questions, just silly people. <laughs> I, I just want to add to that. <laughs> I just want to add to that. Uh, there has been talk uh, about John Mitchell, perhaps, putting his name forward. He's the current assistant coach at England. I'll, I'll, I'll just zip my lips right now. I'll, 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 let, I'll let Ken answer that. Surely he wouldn't go for yeah, that. Well, I suppose with... Yeah, well, I suppose with Mitchell, uh, and I always think that Mitchell is a different guy now to who he was when he when he got the job. Probably too early in his career, to be fair, and he would probably as much admit that. Um, and whilst he was the defence coach for the England team that's done terrific at this year's uh, tournament, does that automatically put him above the other contenders? Um, I'm sure he will apply um, for the job, but you know, I, I would think even. From a, um, a very, very cautious perspective, I would think he's no chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. agree. Righto, thanks for that, Ken. Uh, now, moving forward, looking back at the England versus All Blacks match over the weekend, England winning 19 points to seven. Ken, you touched on it briefly at the top of this podcast. England were dominant, but what went wrong for the All Blacks? What went wrong for the All Blacks? They couldn't get the ball. Um, and when England had the ball... What they did with it, I thought, was phenomenal. Um, I thought the all-black team was actually dressed in white um, <clears throat> watching them watching them play because um, yeah. England normally, we are normally uh, used to seeing an England team, uh, very, very dominant set-piece, fantastic line-out. Um, absolutely, they favour a very structured game um, <clears throat> and advance the ball up the touchlines, play for field position and be patient. Um, we didn't see that in the semi-final. Um, they came. They came out of the blocks quickly. They uh, they used the ball. They were rucking and running, so they weren't leaving the ball uh, on the ground or in the rucks for very long. They always had two or three players available to move the ball forward, um, and they were doing the sort of things that we are used to seeing the All Blacks um, do. And the fact that they were confidently moving the ball to the edge, uh, deep inside their own half, uh, was an indication of how much support, how much support and encouragement. Um, they were clearly getting from their uh, from their game plan and their coaching staff to play that wide, expensive game. I thought it was a terrific uh, game. And, of course, the All Blacks would have done exactly the same thing to England, but they just couldn't get their hands on the ball. So, you know, England had two big advantages on the weekend. One, they had the ball, and two, they were fantastic what they did with it. And what were your thoughts on the England loose forward trio of Curry, Underhill and Bunipola? Terrific, weren't they? Oh, you man. know, Bunipola, there's much, much lauded, um, Billy Bunipola playing at number eight. Uh, Eddie Jones has taken a lot of flack um, over the last year because unlike the Super Rugby competition here in New Zealand, the professional clubs in England are in, are in private ownership. Uh, and he angered and uh, annoyed many of them when he took the players out to put them on camps. And um, he might not want to say this publicly, 
But what Eddie didn't like, he didn't like the slow, predictable, um, <clears throat> laborious nature, monotonous nature of um, of the game that was being played in the English Premier League. So he was playing games the way that he wanted them played in camp. And the boys, some of the boys were going back um, injured. Some of them had their seasons ended um, in those camps. He was working them hard. He was punishing them. Um, the All Blacks do that on every Thursday when they're in camp for tests. Uh, they beat each other up on the Thursday um, before. And, um, you know, there's two schools of logic around that. Uh, one is do it and one is not do it and save your boys for the weekend. Um, but, you know, many people, old school people, believe you give it an edge. And that was the dominant part of Eddie, Eddie Jones's uh, build-up in the 12 months prior um, to the World Cup. He was having the boys very physical and he was flogging them in very, very tough conditions. And we needed them to turn it on. They were physical at the breakdown. Uh, even though they didn't commit a lot of plays to the ground either, but they were also fit enough to be able to come off the ground and play with the ball. Yeah. Uh, we spoke earlier about the conveyor belt of talent coming through New Zealand, but England, their conveyor belt of talent is through the roof. They've made the last six of seven under-20 Rugby World Cup finals. Uh, there are players in this current team, such as Owen Farrell, uh, Maro Itoji, and others, who are now starters, and they're still young. Yeah. Sam Underhill, Scott Curry. Absolutely. Yep, and they're all, gra- they're all graduates of the 20s program. Mm, mm, that's it, so dangerous. Now, where to here for the All Blacks? Well, I think uh, I don't think there's too much wrong. Um, the performance we saw from the All Blacks is uh, we we hardly ever see that type of performance um, from them. I think um, there'll be some aspects of it we'll be concerned about. Um, but I think that they're still going to be a formidable side uh, when the 2020 season comes around as well. So we've got uh, South Africa-Wales, second semi-final. I thought, um, you know, Wales had some, I don't know, they just know how to grind away, don't they, and, and, and get those and get those wins, you know, even against France, um, they come back. So South Africa, 19, Wales, 16. I thought it was going to be a dominant performance by South Africa, but it looked like both of them, both teams were too scared to make a move. Or mm. It seemed like a game of chess, like I move my prawn, you move your prawn, I move my castle, you move your castle, chip away at the three points. They they got to try. It's like they didn't want to, I don't know, commit to too much in case they gave mm. too much away and, and chip away at those three points. And we've seen at the end of the game, South Africa only won by three points. So it seemed like a bit of a kick fest of a game. What do you reckon, Ken? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, bro, with what you say. You know, I thought, I thought South Africa would win the game comfortably. I didn't think Wales would be any chance um, against them. I didn't think England would be a chance against your Blacks. I thought that, you know, playing in the Super Rugby competition in the warmer weather, um, that playing in Japan would suit them more than it would those teams that come out of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I was surprised um, with Wales very, very good showing it. You know, 1916 is an indication that they were good enough to get to the final. Um, you know, I have a, a feeling at the, at the risk of sounding completely ignorant that... Um, uh, neither of those teams are going to beat England anyway. Yep. Yeah, it sort of looks like Based it. on last night's performance, yeah. You know, Wales did well. They had some injuries, didn't they? You know, like even before the World Cup, Gareth Hanscom, uh, Josh Navidi got injured. You know, even Jonathan Davis was 50-50 coming into the game. Mm. Yeah, big win for South Africa, but it's going to be a tight, tight final. Or, you know, well, as you say, actually, England dominant. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could say we missed Damian McKenzie as well, eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's just a reality of contact sport. You're going to get injuries, eh? Yeah, for sure, 100%. So talk around town, Ken, is the third and fourth playoff game means nothing. No point no, well, it's it. A, yeah. No, well, it's the, it's the loser's final. Um, and I see that Television New Zealand are not showing it live because they only negotiated to get 12 games. 
Um, and they're not prepared to pay extra to get that 13 to gain 7 fourth because they were anticipating that the All Blacks would be um, in the final. And of course, you know, everybody, when you get to the last four, your expectation is that obviously if you can get to the last four, you can win it. Yeah. Um, so both Wales and the All Blacks' expectation was going into the semi-finals that, that they would win and they would be getting ready for the final mm. um, on Saturday, not for the losers' final on Friday. Mm. But um, there's a third and fourth playoff um, for uh, for the bronze medal, and um, it's been part of uh, part of the World Cup tournament, so it has to be played. That's right, and we've got two departing coaches and Steve Hansen and Warren Gatlin. What will this game mean to them and their teams? Yeah, well, Gatty and uh, well, Gatlin and um, and Steve uh, know, know know each other well. Uh, Warren Gatlin played; um, he, I think he's the same age as Ian Foster. Um, I think Fozzie's sitting on 148 games for Waikato. Warren Gatlin, I think, is on 147. Uh, they know each other well. They're all, um, they're, they're all friends. Uh, he's had phenomenal success with Wales and the British and Irish Lions. Uh, Warren Gatlin is going to take over the Chiefs um, in 2020. So um, he would think that uh, even though Wales have never beaten the All Blacks, um, I'm not sure in his heart of hearts he thinks that Wales are going to beat them this week. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. it's going to be a tough one for them. I think the TAB odds had them at six dollars ten, and the All Blacks at a dollar ten. So, hey, but we've seen that already. Again. Already, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but we've seen that um, against England through paying three thirty, paying a dollar thirty, and look what happens. So, who knows? Yeah, um, exactly. So TAB got, were the big winners. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got the big dance this Saturday night: England versus South Africa, Rugby World Cup final, two thousand and nineteen. Um, two heavyweights coming up. Maybe a repeat of two thousand and seven. Hard one though. England being this dominant. How do you see it panning out? And does South Africa have a genuine chance to beat England, who are peaking at the right time? Yeah, well, I thought that... Um, um, I thought after 25 minutes when the All Blacks played South Africa, when basically, you know, the game was almost done at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, this wasn't a very good... wasn't a very good South African team. Um, and then they came back and showed, um, showed something... In the um, in the second half against the All Blacks, which I'm sure um, gave everybody some encouragement, but I didn't see any of that in their performance against Wales last night. Mm. Um, and England, um, can they repeat that phenomenal performance? Um, that will be the only question mark. Um, but having said that, the All Blacks did it in 2015, and uh, Eddie would have left no stone um, unturned. Um, so you know, I'm confident that England will win this weekend. So we, we've talked we talked about this before, me and Anadu. So, mm. you know, we had a dominant performance against um, Ireland the week before. I think it was forty six fourteen. And they talk about backing a big game up from another big game. Why is it so hard to back up again from another excellent performance? What 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 is so hard about that? Yeah, well, I know that um, talking to Steve Hansen about not beating uh, one day he was talking to me about not being conned by um, what looks good at Super Rugby. Versus what looks good at um, at international level, and he said at Super, at super Rugby, um, some people always he says make, make make the mistake of looking at the teams from an international perspective. But he said the talent in the professional game is spread so sparsely, with the exception of New Zealand, that it's easy for you to think that you see somebody do something well at Super Rugby level, but it doesn't translate. Yeah. Yep. And he said because, you know, of the way that salary caps are and the way that players are um, basically, you know, farmed out around various clubs yeah. um, and things, you don't really see the best 
of the international teams until those <clears throat> until all those players come together out of their club scenes. And he said, because New Zealand's been so dominant in Super Rugby, uh, he's always warned against me. He said that we're not as dominant or as good um, as the Crusaders are because uh, we have the All Black forward pack that's essentially been concentrated at the Crusaders for, the, yeah. for a decade. He says, and the other ones, they have their players spread all around, but when they come together, they are as good as the All Blacks physically. And uh, he's always warned. Um, he's always warned of that. So, you know, um, you go back to some of the close games, you know, that Steve Henson's won and lost. Um, and that's an indication of how tough it is um, at that elite international level. You know, hence the phenomenal record um, that he's got. But the reality is there is not a lot between the top teams at international level. Righto, changing gear now. Uh, this weekend, the Rugby World Cup will come to a close in Japan. And what great hosts they've been. Uh, Ken, you've been to Japan a, a few times commentating on the rugby. Can you share some of your experiences about Japan and the Japanese people during those times you've been over there? Yeah, well, um, I was there in 2011 to commentate international rugby. And um, the first um, it was the first international games that, have gone, that were going around the globe um, since the earthquakes. And um, when I when I arrived at the ground um, to do uh, to do the rehearsals and the pre-records, uh, they'd made this very moving um, narration of um, Japan, the wondrous country that had suffered um, so badly, and um, and it found a way through its character and resilience to come together as a nation. And now they're ready to um, broadcast to the world that Japan has recovered and now taking its place on the global stage from a sporting perspective. And um, that sentiment underpinned um, the coverage. And I had a similar situation in um, 2016. So I was uh, I was presenting and commentating the first Sunwolves game, which was the first time any Japanese team had been on te- television following the 2015 upset. Of, um, of South Africa at the Rugby World Cup um, in England. And I remember at the production meeting uh, being introduced to the domestic commentator in, um, in Japan. So for those of our, uh, those of our listeners that um, uh, may, not, may not recall the incident, um, Aust- um, South Africa were winning the game. Um, they were the favourites to win the game and they were winning and time was up on the clock. They were inside their own half, and they hit the ball, and they knocked it on. Uh, seconds after they knocked it on, the full-time hooter went. So the referee ordered the scrum to be taken because the knock-on happened in regulation time. And um, as the players were, and they were still a chance. They needed a try to, they needed a try to win the game. And um, as they say, with his hope, uh, with his life, there's hope. And um, as the players from Japan were going. Um, to the scrum, the Japan domestic commentator told the audience back home, um, one last play, one last scrum. Let's all go together as one nation and help our boys at the scrum. And the stories I'm told are that there were grown people, uh, grown people who were uh, very emotional, some of them in tears, stood up in their homes and they walked towards the TV thinking that they were going with the Japan team to help win the scrum. History will tell you that they did win the scrum. They spread it to the left-hand corner, and um, a player born in New Zealand by the name of Khan Heskis um, scored the try. 
but the emotion, the sentiment, um, the huge size of Japan uh, as a country and everything that they've had to deal to deal with in their very, very rich history, um, they are just able to crystallise that in, um, into wonderful small moments to celebrate. And uh, people are going to come away from the World Cup 2019 saying that Japan's hosting is one of the greatest ever in the history of rugby. Yeah, and we're a privilege on us to be in Japan for the mm. and we've seen it. Um, the Japanese people were so helpful. You, you, you'd be getting lost. They'll be helping you to the game. Your Japanese singing national anthems, um, getting right in, supporting all the countries, backing them. Um, and, you know, you could see the raw emotion after the games, even just pool games, you know, the tears streaming down their face. So we actually seen that there, and it was an honour to be there and to witness that and see that. Mm. And um, apart from obviously New Zealand 2011, this is definitely up there, if not probably the best World Cup. Um, but just before we wrap it up, Ken, and that was lovely to hear those stories, awesome. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the Brave Blossoms just a little bit more and touch on a couple of key games in the tournament that set, uh, set the rugby world alight. Japan versus Ireland. Masterclass Japan win, Japan versus Scotland, Masterclass Japan win. But the thing that gets me a little bit is we've got these Tier 2 nations beating Tier 1 nations now, and how do we start integrating the so-called minnow teams, the, the Samoas, the Tongas, the Fijis, the Georgias, the USAs, into our major rugby union tournaments outside of the Rugby World Cup? You know, we've got the Championship Cup, we've got the Six Nations, I know we've got the Pacific uh, Cup, but we need to get the um, our Polynesian brothers, um, I don't know, you know, the world rugby need to sit down and start putting their words into actions. And so how do we how do we get these these teams involved? I'm hoping that um, uh, in the next life form of Steve Chu, the uh, retiring CEO of uh, New Zealand Rugby Union, uh, and Steve Hansen, the retiring coach, um, that they will turn their attention to Oceania and to Pacific, if that's at all possible, in conjunction. Um, with World Rugby, and I noted that Eddie Jones actually alluded to that in one of the press conferences. And um, I would love to see um, the All Blacks and the Wallabies actually join the Pacific Nations, mm. um, which already has Japan in it, and um, Samoa, Tonga, and Fiji, um, and then um, get to a situation where um, there's an equal distribution of talent. Um, whether they relax the eligibility rules for that particular tournament, uh, but we find ways and they find the resources to one adequately um, pay the players fairly across the board to play in the competition, and that all teams get equal access um, to their players, and that they continue um, to find ways. Well, you know, those see Victor Vitor quite capable of playing in for um, Samoa <clears throat> uh, this year. Kiri Oane could have played. Um, for Samoa, Stephen Luatua could have played um, for Samoa. You know, Waisaka Naholo could have played for Fiji. Um, all those kinds of uh, all those kinds of decisions. David Harvey could have played for Tonga. Nehemiah Skana could could have played for Tonga as well. So there are very interesting um, conundrums out there um, that, in my view, represent opportunities. To, uh, to advance the game. And you only have to look at rugby league and the rise of Tonga and rugby league. And they aren't their rise due to the fact that they've got all their elite players now running out for Tonga. Um, so I can, I can only see good things ahead um, for the game. And hopefully World Rugby can start to realise some of that vision and turn some of those ideas into action plans. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So we talked a lot about international rugby on this episode, but uh, domestically here in New, Zeal- New Zealand, sorry, the Mitre 10 Cup, has just wrapped up. 
what do you do now, mate? <laughs> Moving forward, you're, you're commentating. Well, what's, yeah. What's, what's up next? Yeah, mate. Well, I, well, it's been a hectic year for me. Uh, but I've had, uh, I think I've had uh, three weekends home since February. Um, and I'm just off the plane a couple of hours ago um, from the uh, from the Meads Cup final down south on the weekend where uh, North Otago beat, uh, beat Wanganui. As we all know, Tasman beat uh, Tasman beat Wellington, Bayapini beat Hawke's Bay, and Canterbury beat Auckland in the Farah Palmer Cup uh, Premiership. And um, Hawke's, Bay, uh, Hawke's Bay and Otago had a, um, had a thrilling game, and Otago will return to the Premiership in the Farah Palmer Cup. So it's been a terrific uh, year. We've got... Um, both of us rugby commentators at Sky, I think we've got two or three weekends off and then we'll hit the seventh circuit at the end of the month. Oh, oh wow, cool. Let's go. Can we come? <laughs> <laughs> of course, bro. Of course. <laughs> we won't give out day job just yet, I don't know. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, thanks heaps, Ken. Um, Ken's our, Ken's our neighbour. He's just around the corner from us here in Wainuimata. So thanks for joining us today on our episode. Uh, just reviewing last weekend's matches and looking forward to this weekend's final two matches um, we appreciate all your all your knowledge and expertise and your insights, uh, and thanks heaps for joining us today. Fantastic, great, thanks, Ken. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Yeah, my my pleasure. Anytime. All right then. Take Cheers, care, brother. Thanks, Ken. Cheers, brother. Bye, bro. Wow, how cool having Ken Laban on our Pick Up the Pace podcast today, Anadu. It's unbelievable how much he knows and how many connections he has. Steve Hansen, Eddie Jones, the list goes on. Ken Laban, Sky Sport, rugby commentator. Thank you so much for joining us here on Pick Up The Pace. That's another episode done and dusted. We have a massive lineup of special guests coming up in the next few weeks. We do. Huge guests. We don't want to let out just yet, but we'll give you a few snippets as we get closer to the time. And just because the All Blacks have been knocked out of the tournament doesn't we mean we'll stop. Anywhere. We're not going nowhere. We're hanging right here because we're true blue and we bleed black. <laughs> All black everything. We don't care. We'll carry on. Hey, Listen guys. in. Thanks for being here for Pick Up The Pace Podcast, Episode 4. Sayonara and take care. Kakite. Long ago.